So what do you think about those two videos back to back? <laughs> On the one hand, you have the kid president, which I love, the kid president, corn dogs rule. And, and then you have his hope and his optimism about the future, what the future holds, and then you look at some statistics, which paint a picture that are a little less optimistic. And uh, I'm Mike Rutledge. I'm the director of arts here at K2. I'm one of the pastors. And the good news is for you guys, since I'm a pastor, I'm here to solve all parenting problems, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Because I'm going to do it through my, you know, deep spiritual uh, maturity, my great skills of oration, my, uh, the fact that I've mastered parenting in my house. Uh, My kids, just so you know, they always do what I ask the first time uh, with a smile on their face because they know that they're about to please their father and that brings them great joy. They've embraced all of the values that my wife and I hold and we usually just run around the house hugging and laughing and having a great time. So there's hope for you guys who don't have that in your life. So I'm excited about this morning. Well, actually some of that wasn't true. Uh, but I am a pastor, and I'm talking about parenting, and uh, yeah, that's about it right there. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the reality is parenting, as rewarding as it is, and it is very rewarding, parenting is hard work. It's a lot of work sometimes. And I, so I went to Amazon just to see what books are available, you know, on parenting, and it was pretty overwhelming. I just made a quick list of the books that just popped off the top, Parenting, Parenting After Divorce, Parenting the Strong-Willed Child, Parenting the Powerful Child, Parenting with Love and Logic, Raising Kids God's Way, Having a New Kid by Friday, 10 Questions Adoptive Parents Ask, and then, not to mention conferences, DVD sets, classes, workshops, and of course, the advice that your parents and your teens have for your personal improvement in parenting, right? <laughs> well, we're in the middle of this uh, series that we're calling Relationships, where we're looking at what, it, what, the, what the reality of relationships are in today's day and age. Two weeks ago, Dave, if you were here, Dave talked about uh, marriage. Last week, Lad talked about divorce. And this week, I'm talking about multiplied or parenting in the new reality. You know, and, uh, we know that art imitates life and art imitates culture, Right? And so you look at television, you look, go back to the 50s. Remember the TV families in the 50s? The Beavers, you know, the Cleavers, Leave it to Beaver. And you have uh, Father Knows Best and Ozzie and Harriet. And those families were very, you know, uh, f- you know two and a half kids, first marriage, uh, picket fence, dog, that whole deal. Dad would go to work while mom stayed home and got herself gussied up so she could clean the house in high heels and meet dad at the door with a lemonade, a pipe, and the newspaper so he could sit down and relax while she finished dinner. You know that? That's how my house looks. How about you guys? Anyone else out there? Yep. Well, after today, you will be, that's how your house will look if you just apply these principles I'm going to talk about. You know, but then what happened is just even tracing through television, you see, remember the Brady Bunch in the, in the late 60s, and then that's where the uh, widowed father of three meets the widowed mother of three, and they marry, and they look at the exploits of what parenting and families look like in that process. And then, uh, remember different strokes in the 70s? Remember that? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> you don't remember the name of the, mo- <laughs> the TV show, you remember that. But uh, yeah, it's this uh, white man and his daughter, single dad, they adopt two uh, African-American kids from Harlem, and they look at how that happens. And then the list just kind of goes on as, the, as we get closer and closer to, uh, of all the TV shows where the non-conventional family starts to take the, 
the uh, prominence in that. And then what's, what's the show that everyone's watching today about family? Modern family. And in that family, right, we've got second marriages, we've got divorces, we've got adoption, we've got uh, gay couples, we've got, it's got it all in there. Everything. Because that's what culture looks like today. I was talking to Virag, um, who, who is, uh, Virag works here, she does our graphics, and I was, I said to her, man, you know, if you just, if you just, like, wa- and I know you don't, because we all have DVRs and TiVo, so no one watches commercials anymore, but if you did just watch commercials, TV commercials of, like, minivans, right, you would think that, uh, you know, that conventional family is a predominant family, right? And I, I said that to her, and she goes, you've been watching the Olympics? I said, No. Have you seen this commercial that they're running in the Olympics? No. You should take a look at this. So I want you to take a look at this family and notice some pretty interesting stuff. Take a look at this. They are the ones we trust with our most secret secrets. Who are always there when we need them. They are family. And while what it means to be a family hasn't changed, what a family looks like has. This is the new us. Chevrolet Traverse, with the highest possible overall vehicle score for safety, for whatever shape your family takes. Did you catch that? Highest possible vehicle score for safety. No, that's a joke. (laughs) Serious? Did you catch the family dynamics in there? Everything, And that's the way we look. Even our commercials today are speaking the language of our culture. That's how we look. I, you know, I could throw all kinds of statistics at you. I'm not going to, but I do want to just point out a couple different statistics here. One is that did you know that 23 and a half, less than, less than a quarter of us, statistically speaking, less than a quarter of the American households are made up of a married man and a woman and their children. Less than 25%. And that... In 2010, the blended family became the predominant family in America. 65% of us are now a step-parent, step-child, step-sibling, step-grandparent, or touched by, directly by some step-family scenario. Two-thirds of us, most of us, the norm anymore is not to be the traditional family. And that's the reality we're dealing with. So when you think about the cleavers, you think about, you know, leave it to be, that's not the norm. That's not what families look like. Uh, you know, and I was, I was joking, yeah, we, don't, we don't even look like the Simpsons anymore, right? <laughs> as jacked up as that family was, that's not even the norm, right? And then what I, I think what we need to understand is that when we talk about parenting, it's a new reality. And, but, but what's interesting, though, it's a new reality on one hand because the statistics are growing in that way that, that more and more so we're seeing a higher percentage of this. But it's not new. When I, I traced through the Bible and I, I just looked at families, what families looked like, and it's all over the map as well. You look at Adam and Eve. And before I even talk about them for just a second, I just want you to understand something that you'll find extremely discouraging. So here's a little discouragement for your day that Adam and Eve, the first children... God creates Adam and Eve, the first children of a perfect dad doing everything perfectly, screw up. So there's your discouragement for the day. Do work hard, do all the right things, and you have no guarantees. Don't Im- let go of the reality or, the, or embracing this, this, this false notion that we have control, okay? But honestly, what I want us to understand is there's encouragement in knowing that 
we're not the first to have to deal with this. You look at Adam and Eve, for instance, and, and uh, if you remember, their son Cain, Cain and Abel, what was the problem there? Sibling rivalry. Anyone ever see that in your family? Yeah. Remember Isaac and Rebecca? Um, Isaac, they have parent favorites, and it's not the same one. Isaac likes Esau, and, and Rebecca likes Jacob, and then they have this big squabble, and a birthright gets ripped off by someone, caused all kinds of craziness in that family. You look at Eli, you may not know Eli, he was a priest. Uh, for the uh, people of Israel, and he refused to discipline his children. <laughs> and because of his refusal to discipline his children, they were doing crazy, crazy stuff, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't step into that role of, of doing the right thing before God, and they were removed by death. They, they died to remove their family, and they were promised to continue, but out, can't deal with it anymore. Then you have Abraham and Sarah. Remember, they're promised a kid, but she, he's closing in, he, they're both closing in on 100 years old, and they're thinking, this isn't going to happen. So they devised this plan for uh, Abraham to get their, uh, to have a child with Hagar, the servant in the house, right? And that worked out really well because Hagar has Ishmael, who's the father of the Arab nation, and then Sarah finally has Isaac, who's the father of the Israel nation. How's that working out? But even worse, Hagar becomes the first single parent mentioned in the Bible. Because there's so much tension in the house between Sarah and Hagar that it says Abraham puts her away. Done with you, too much hassle. Ever see that in current society? Just don't want to deal with it anymore. Again, I tell you, it's not so you have doubt or distrust in God's word, but this you'll find hope because this doesn't catch God off guard. He's aware of this stuff. He's seen it all before. And the odds are that you are dealing with some sort of non-traditional family. I know I am. My house is. My wife, is, her parents were uh, divorced, and she has steps, uh, stepsister, and, and uh, odds are you are too. But what I want to do is I want to look today at God's word and try and understand what God is saying to all of us, no matter where we are on the spectrum of family. Because it's a new dynamic, but God's word is still the same. And here's, again, what I want to share with you is there's no checklist for if, so if you have, if you're a single parent and you have three kids, and when this happens, do this. The Bible is just not written that way. The Bible, or if, you know, if you're a married couple, uh, but you have adopted four children, it doesn't work that way. It gives general principles. The good news is the principles apply across the board for parenting and families in general. So what I want to share with you, though the dynamics of the home are different, the principles are still the same. And I want to look at Ephesians chapter 5, which is just picking up from where Lad and Dave have talked for the last two weeks and kind of continue on. We're going to pick up in verse 31 and just read along with me if you have your Bibles, grab those, or you can look on the screens or your smartphones. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 5. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Okay, 
Now, the first thing I want us to understand is this is a process for how families should function in God's eyes, okay? And he addresses mo- all like the dynamics of family. Again, he doesn't go into the specifics of blended families and things like that, just families in general. And the context that he writes this under, that Paul writes this, is under submission. Okay, now that's just a great word. How many of you woke up today and said, oh, I hope I have to submit to someone today? Right? We don't like to submit. I mean, you think of even in UFC, MMA, you know that. But you submit someone, right? You win because they're bleeding to death or something, whatever it is. Right? See, what Paul is saying that this whole process only works when we are all willing to submit. When we refuse to submit, just know this, it breaks down in a heartbeat. When just one person refuses to submit. The context uh, let me, first he talks about husbands and wives And I'm not going to re-preach this message Because Dave gave this two weeks ago If you weren't here and you didn't hear Dave's message on, on marriage I go, go to the K2 site You can, can listen uh, to the message there or Go to iTunes and download the podcast and listen to him Basically, just in a nutshell Husbands, he says, love your wives In verse 25, just a few verses before He says, love your wives How as Christ loved the church And how did Christ love the church? He gave his life for it so husbands are called to love their wives to the point of giving your life for it. Women are called to what? Submit and respect your husbands. And here's, here's how this conversation goes. Well, I'll respect when he gives his life for me. Well, I'll give my life for you when you respect me. See what happens when one person refuses to abide by biblical principles. It falls apart. Again, I'm not going to re-preach that message. Just go and listen to that. But then he goes directly from husbands and wives and the the marital relationship. He goes into children. Now, this is kind of interesting because what we find here in the language used by Paul in writing, he doesn't, it's it's pretty clear that he understood that children were going to be in in the congregation when they were reading this letter. Because he doesn't say, parents, here's what you tell your kids. He says, children... Heads up. And I'm going to do the same. If you're a child and you're living with your parents, I'm talking to you right now. And the bad news, you're not going to like what I have to say. Okay? Because what he says is this. It's pretty straightforward. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. So the first thing, he calls you as a child, which you're not going to like, just obey. Why? Because you're a believer. You believe in Jesus. Obey your parents. And then he says, next thing, why? Because it's right. So obey because you're a believer. Submit to your parents because it's right. And then he says this. It's also commanded. And he goes on to cite Exodus chapter 20. What's Exodus chapter 20? Anyone know what that is? Ten commandments. He cites uh, the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and mother. It's commanded. So not only because you're a believer, not only because it's right, but because it's commanded. And here's the good news for you if you're a child in here today. Not only is it right and commanded and you do it because you're a follower of Jesus, but there's a blessing for those of you who actually honor and obey your parents. Now, I think that by implication, there's some blessing that comes as the result of listening to your parents' advice and following that. Look at he again. You find this in, in uh, chapter twenty of Exodus. The blessing is this: if you honor and, and obey, then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. 
So the good news is by submitting to God's word and doing the right thing, you're offered a blessing. Then what's interesting, not only does he say honor your parents, but he's, or not only does he say obey your parents, he says honor your mother and your father. Now there's two different categories that he's addressing. The first category is children, minors, children, obey your parents, right? But then he goes on to say this, honor your father and mother. Uh, let me see, raise your hand if you are not the child of someone. Right. This is the point. We expect our kids to honor us, but when we become adults, oh, you know, what do they know? And what does it mean to honor? To honor means to understand the value of what I have in my parents. And as a teen, sometimes for me that was tough. Well, no, because I'm a pastor, so it wasn't tough for me, but you may have struggled with that, (laughs) right? And my teen, if I were not a pastor, would struggle with that as well. But as adults, we're called to honor. And an interesting passage in John, I think it's chapter 19, where uh, Jesus is on the cross, and he's uttering his final words. And he looks down, and he sees John, and he sees his mom. Remember what he says? He says, Mom, this is your son. Son, Mom. John, you, that's, that's your mom. Honor her. He creates a blended family on the spot, and calls him to honor his, his mom because he's going away. Very interestingly, then, he moves from children's role to obey and to honor to the parents' role. And he says, fathers, uh, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. D.L. Moody, he's an old theologian from the early 1900s. He says, a man ought to live so that everybody knows he's a Christian. And most of all, his family ought to know. So he moves from children to parents. He says fathers, and I think by implication he's talking to mothers as well, but there's a specific command to parents. And he says, don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. And I think that we often, when we start thinking about provoking your children to anger, what do we think? We think that there's conflict and there's fighting and I'm being mean and oppressive and all that kind of stuff. And that's probably true. That's probably part of what provokes our kids to anger. But I think it's a narrow understanding of what anger is and how we produce it in our children. I came across Lad Chapman showed me this video, and it's just an amazing video, and it's a great demonstration of provoking your children to anger. I want you to take a look at this, if you would. My dad, I've always remembered him as somewhat the smartest man in the room, but um, distant. He was always either gone in the streets or um, doing some other random deal or um, just drinking partying, but he really wasn't at home with me. I think he was a man who was more caught up with himself than anybody else around him. He went to England for the first time when I was eight. My thought was he was going on a vacation again. He just never returned. So it, it, there wasn't any sense of closure. There wasn't any sense of, okay, he's gone. He just left. Right after he left, I was molested. Um, by the living help of this woman was there. She was um, 16, 17, I was um, just turning 10. And I was molested for a while. And that 
create a rift in my mind because I thought he was supposed to protect me. So not only did he turn his back on me, he left me open to be abused for about three months. After that, we didn't really talk for like years on end. Where I would go a couple of years without him calling me. Personally, I hated him. I hated him like full out hatred. I wanted to nothing to do with him. I didn't want to be anything like him. And I started to come to men's fraternity. It was at 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. And in men's fraternity, I got to know Pastor Carter and I got to know the other guys. He was sharing his experience with his father and how he has his father wound and what he was going through to do it, um, to address it, and what he's been through and how it helped him. And he told me I need to write a letter to my father. So I decided I was going to try it. I wrote a letter to my father. and It talked about how I felt when he left me, how I felt when I was abused. I just tried to share that with him. And at the end of the letter, I wrote, I forgive you and I love you. Now I have no clue how I wrote that because I still didn't think that I had forgiven him. And I said, you know, if you want a relationship, I'm open to it. But um, I sealed the letter, sent it off, didn't expect to hear back from him. He actually never responded by a letter. He called me actually um, crying and trying to talk to me and say, you know, he's so sorry that I got molested. He's so sorry that, you know, I felt that way towards him and, um, and he loved me. And when I heard those words, I love you, it just messed me up, man. Um, you know, as a little kid who always wanted to hear that from his father, and I always looked up to his father to hear that finally. I haven't seen him in 18 years at that time. I really didn't know what I was going to do, so I kept on praying and asking God to help me. And then eventually I decided I was going to try to make the first step and go over there and try to see him. And the best feeling I felt was looking at him and seeing him walk up to me. I felt love in my heart. I don't know how that felt, man. That, that's just... To hate somebody your whole life and to see him for the first time in 18 years and to feel love in your heart. That's Jesus right there, man. Who else but Jesus? For me to hate somebody my whole life, most of my life, even when I was there, I hated him. And to feel love in your heart the first time you see him. Forgiveness is not for that person. Forgiveness is for nobody but you, and that's what I realized. The time that I forgave my father is the time that I started to heal. Heavy story, huh? See, I think that when we think about provoking our children to anger, we just think that it's conflict, but I think our absenteeism and our lack of initiative into the relationships can produce the equal kind of anger. See, the first part, what he says to kids is, or what he says to parents is, don't provoke them to anger, but then he goes on, that's the don't do, but here's the, what you should do. He says, bring them up, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. And bring them up. The Greek word that's used for that it actually means to nurture or nourish. Evelyn Bossert was in the spiritual advisor. Some of you may know her. She's one of our spiritual advisory board members. And she was, I uh, was in a meeting early on in the life of the church. And she just said, you know, there's two kinds of power. There's power over and there's power under. Power over is power you have as a result of a position or a title. And you have the, you have the freedom to do whatever you want. And someone has to do it. That's power over. 
See, that's what, that's what he had. He had power over his son. He could do whatever he wanted. Power under is helping nourish people through instruction and through encouragement and through discipline, which it says. And what do you see in this story that's so beautiful? A broken family, an AWOL dad, whose son is growing in anger and bitterness towards his father who's not there to protect him and do all those things like nourishing and and loving and instructing and encouraging. But what happens? See, the son takes a step in honoring his father by writing a letter. And the father responds. And what we see is God's plan actually works. It's an amazing story. A broken family becomes united as a result of submission to God. Not fighting for what we get or what we think we deserve. What's interesting with this passage, though, is that it goes on and it jumps from from this stuff right into the armor of God. And when I read this the first time, I'm like, man, what happened to the clutch here? We just, boom, new gear all of a sudden. Then I realized, actually, it's not at all a new gear. It's the logical progression of what he's talking about. See, God's plan for us to be able to live in relationships where we submit to each other and hope to have healthy, godly relationships isn't a matter of willpower. It's a matter of God's power manifest in our life. And how do we let God's power be manifest in our life? We do that through what he says next, by putting on the armor of God. Well, what's the armor of God? We start by saying this, put on the belt of truth. See, we know in John... Satan is called a liar. And just so you know, if there's any confusion about this, Satan has you in his crosshairs, and he's hoping to wreck your relationships, every single one of them. That's what he desires. He wants to blow them up. And so he's going to tell you lies. He's going to use others to tell you lies. He's going to have you believe lies about others so that your relationships don't work. And when you're not getting what you want, he's going to have you be tempted to work in deceit and deception and sneakiness and stuff that's not true. And as soon as we start to, what, what happens when someone lies to you? Do you go, oh man, this is awesome. I want to act like God now. <laughs> right? That's what we do, isn't it? No. See, it's a vicious cycle that takes us in the wrong direction, away from godly principles into human principles that get me what I want, not through submission, but by power, power over. Next thing, not only the belt of truth, but the body armor of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate covers what part of your body? Your heart. Anyone ever been hurt in a relationship? Or is it just me? Just me? (laughs) Who said that? (laughs) See, Satan is called the accuser, and what he wants to do is use us to accuse each other of things or for us to believe things that aren't true and be accused. And here's how the breastplate of righteousness works. When we are acting righteously, guess what happens with the accusations? They don't stick. Why? Because I know that I'm doing the right thing. Then he goes from there to the shoes of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Satan actually means adversary. And his desire in our relationships is to create chaotic adversarial conflict that ruins our ability to love and submit. And God wants us to be peaceful. Then he says, take the shield of faith. What's the shield of faith? Well, we know that Satan is also called the destroyer. 
He's in 1 Peter, he's a roaring lion looking to devour us. He wants to take us down. And it says in Ephesians, use the shield of faith to block the fiery darts that Satan is going to throw at you. What's he, what is that for the fiery darts? Yeah, he sees something, he's going to throw fuel on the fire. Right? Because he wants to take us out. And when we use the shield of faith, well, why the shield of faith? Because I believe what he's saying is to believe and have faith that what God says is best for us actually is. Not what we want, not what we feel, not what we desire, but what God tells us is best. We have to have faith because sometimes, I got to tell you, I don't always feel like it is. Then he says, put on the helmet of salvation. Well, what's that for? To help our minds not think junk. He's Satan is the deceiver. He wants us to get all sideways and spun around and thinking stuff that's not true and get confused about how relationships are supposed to go and we start acting on beliefs that take us in the wrong direction. So protect your thinking. And then he gives us one offensive piece of armor and that's the sword of the spirit. And what is the Bible called? The Bible is called the sword. Remember when Jesus was in the garden? Uh, he, he was uh, actually not in the garden. He was uh, out and Satan was tempting him. Remember that? And, and Satan came and he said, it is written. And he starts quoting the scripture and, God, and Jesus says to him, hey, let's be clear on what, let, let, let me just be clear on what God's word says. And just for you to understand that when you want to combat your feelings or when you want to combat stuff that's going on in your life, lies or, or accusations or the things that Satan uses to take us down the wrong path, the way to enter into battle is through knowing God's word, the truth, and being able to understand what he calls us to. And I just have to tell you, if that's not a practice of your life, you're in trouble in the very near future. Three things I just want to quickly share with you as we close out this morning, and it's this. For all of us, we're called to live with three things. The first thing is to live in integrity, and that's just what I talked about. Put on the armor of God when we're in relationships. Just put on that armor of God and trust that that's the right thing. Romans 12 tells us this, verse 16. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't think that you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you're honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with each other. Be honorable. Have integrity in your relationships. Do the right thing. And the right thing is what God calls us to, submitting to each other. But not only are we supposed to have integrity, we're also supposed to live in community. I love this quote by Tim Keller. It says this. To be loved, but not, excuse me, but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. See, what we need is to live in a community where people know us and we know people because what that produces is the next thing that we can live with openness. You know, one of the greatest things about my youngest kids is that I know what they think because they say it out loud. You know what I mean, little kids? I'm pretty clear when my son hates me because he says something like, I hate you. And how many of you, as a parent, would want your kids, when they're struggling with something, to hide and run away so you have no idea? 
See, this is why openness in our relationships, whatever the dynamic of our family is, to be in a place where we're known and we don't have to feel like we have to put on the pretense of, look, I got to sort it out. I'm the guy. Come to me. I'll help you. And when I'm struggling, I'll just tell you the one thing I do. I talk to the guys in the management team that I hang out with. You know what they say to me? Are you kidding me? How can this be happening? That's unacceptable, Mike. No, they don't say that. They're like, hey, I want to pray with you. How can I help you? I trust you, I believe in you, and I want to be part of your healing. And that's what we're called to in this place, for us to be involved in each other's lives and helping each other in our family dynamics wherever we are. You guys pray with me. I just want to say one other thing. We have a team of people who are here and they would love to pray with you if it's something that's hit you from this morning or something that's unrelated to anything we've talked about. We just have people who would love to help you in this process. You can be open with them and share and they can help guide you in that process. And pray with me if you would. In the band, you guys can come on forward. Heavenly Father, we love you and we're grateful for the love you do have for us. Help us to embrace the truth that your way is the right way and it's a better way. And when we submit to you, what you desire happens. May soften our hearts to follow you wholeheartedly. May we trust you and know that you have our best in mind. We ask this in your name. Amen.